Well, if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, your worship guide and perhaps the screens are going to say chapter 6. Uh, but we're an advanced group and so we're going to go to chapter 9, okay? 2 Samuel chapter 9. This is... And if I told you a different chapter a few weeks ago, don't fuss at me, but this is my favorite chapter <laughs> in Scripture. Uh, was going to preach on this next week, but I just couldn't wait, and so it's today. I've actually preached on this very same Scripture three times since I've been your pastor. Uh, different sermons, and today will be a different sermon still. Uh, I love 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's verse 1 we're going to focus on today. They're just 19 words, but 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 contains the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, and includes almost every element. It is, it is the solid gold, 10-carat diamond, Mona Lisa verse of the Old Testament. And I want you to see in this one short verse six beautiful pictures of the gospel. But in order to do that, we really need to look at the entire chapter. It's a short chapter. We'll go through it quickly, and then we'll go back to verse 1 and spend some time there. So follow with me. 2 Samuel 9, 1, David asked, is there anything, anyone remaining from the family of Saul I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Now, let me give you a little bit of a who's whom here. Uh, David is the king of Israel. He has fairly recently become the king. He's really still setting up his administration and getting affairs in order. Uh, we were talking last week about him uh, seeking to bring the Ark of the Covenant uh, to the capital city to put the Lord in the center place of the worship and the focus of the country. And now he begins to look at some of, the, uh, some of the more administrative things, and he's going to look back at the previous administration. That was King Saul. Saul died in battle. Uh, Saul's son, Jonathan, who would have naturally been the next king, at least in the minds of most, uh, Saul's son, Jonathan, also died in battle. And you should know, and we'll go deeper on this today, that David and Jonathan, ironically, were the best of friends. And so, uh, David's predecessor, Saul, has died. Jonathan, the, uh, the natural successor in most people's minds, has also died. David is the king. And so, he's asking in verse 1, is there someone I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? And that points back to this close relationship that he had with Saul's son, Jonathan. Verse 2, there was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba, and they summoned him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? And Ziba said to the king, there is still Jonathan's son who is injured in both feet. Now, why do you think uh, David might ask about descendants in Saul's family? 
At least what would Zeba have thought? What would most people think when the current king begins to look for descendants of the previous king? Well, you've got to understand a few things about what it means to be the king. First of all, the king had absolute position. In those days, no one ranked higher than the king. There was no court you could appeal to. The king made final decisions. You also need to know that the king had absolute power. There was nothing that could be done that he couldn't do. Uh, he also had absolute prerogative. That's a technical phrase, which meant that the king had the power of the purge. So, and if you know much about history, you know that this is a fairly common thing. When someone would become the king, he would often have everybody in the family of the previous king executed. He would purge them. Why? So that none of them could rise up and claim the throne. And that was a common thing, not in Israel, because he's only the second king of Israel, so this is the first time this could happen, but it was a common thing just in the world. And so when David asks Ziba, is there anyone left in the house of Saul, Ziba must have thought, well, here he goes. David is going to execute anybody left in the house of Saul so that nobody can rise up and claim the throne. And so Ziba says, there's still one. It's the son of Jonathan. So the grandson of the king, the son of Jonathan. But Ziba adds this uh, biographical detail. He says that this son of Jonathan, that he is lame in both of his feet. Now that's an important thing to note here. Uh, in those days to be lame in your feet, especially both of your feet, well, it meant that you were going to live a pretty miserable life. Uh, in those days, there really ju were just two jobs for men. One was to fight in battle, uh, which you can't do if you can't walk. And the other one was to work the fields, which you can't do if you can't walk. And so to be lame in your feet would have been a miserable, miserable life. Now, how was Mephibosheth lame in both of his feet? Well, this is an interesting story. You find it back in chapter 4, 2 Samuel 4. When Saul died, the king died, the people in the king's household, uh, they were for the king, right? They were for Saul. And Saul had said of David that he is a bloodthirsty man and he is the enemy. Now, he wasn't those things and we know that from our study. But at least in Saul's household, they thought that David was just out for blood. And so when they find out that Saul, the king, has died, David is now the king, they suspect that David's going to show up and just kill everybody in the household. And so they flee. And a nurse picks up uh, uh, this, uh, this little boy, Mephibosheth is his name, and she's running. She's trying to get out of the palace in case David comes to just bring havoc to the family. And while she's fleeing, she falls down on his feet, on his legs, crushes them, and he's lame in both of his feet. So that's how that happened. Now let's look at verse four. The king asked, where is he? Where is this son of Jonathan? 
Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Lodabar at the house of Mikar, the son of Amiel. So he's in Lodabar, Lodabar. Now where is Lodabar? Geographically, we're not sure. Uh, some people believe about 15 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. That put it about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, but what we do know is the meaning in Hebrew of the word lo debar. It means place of desolation. It means a barren place. It means in the middle of nowhere. It's the place no one would want to live. It's like Staten Island or Lufkin or something like that. Lo Debar, the nowhere place. And I know we have a lot of Lufkin people here today, several. So um, we have some real estate agents as well. So you, we'll help you make that connection. So now we don't know where Lo Debar was geographically, but church, we do know where Lo Debar was um, emotionally. We do know where Lo Debar was uh, psychologically. Lodabar was the place of crushed dreams. Uh, Mephibosheth, in just a heartbeat, went from being the future king, right? If you are the grandson of the king, then one day you're going to be the king, the king of Israel. He went from being the future king to being desolate, laying in a bed, unable to work, begging for food, crushed dreams. If Mephibosheth would have had a t-shirt, it would have said, if it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. If he had a motto, it would have been, if only. If only David hadn't uh, been so bloodthirsty. If only that clumsy nurse hadn't fallen on me. If only. If he would have had a slogan, it would have been, what might have been. He might have been sitting on the throne, in the palace, leading the nation, the wealthiest man in that part of the world, what might have been. And so Lodabar was a place of crushed dreams. I'm sure we have people here today who would say, my dreams have been crushed, crushed dreams. But Lodabar was also a place of perpetual fear. Uh, he knew uh, that often kings would perform a purge and he had to know that one day David would hunt him down and execute him. Uh, every day when he ate his dinner meal, he knew it might be the last meal he ever ate. Every night when the sun went down, he knew that might be his last sunset. He lived in perpetual fear. And I know many people live in fear. Fear because of the actions of others or the consequences of your own actions, perpetual fear. Lodabar was also a place of increasing bitterness. Don't you know that Mephibosheth, as he laid on that bed, impoverished, begging for food in Lodabar, he very well could have been so angry and bitter with a growing bitterness at a lot of people. He could have been angry at God. God, why did you let this happen? God, why did you let Saul, the king, die in a battle? Why did you let David come upon the throne? Why did you let this nurse uh, fall on my legs? He might have been angry at David. 
Why is David the king? Why has David inserted himself in this position? Maybe he was better at the nurse. Maybe he thought that clumsy nurse, why didn't she take more care? Why wasn't she more cautious? Why did she trip and fall? Why wasn't she paying better attention? Lodabar, a place of crushed dreams and perpetual fear and increased, increasing bitterness. And many people today live in Lodabar. We'll look at verse 5. The scripture says, so King David had him brought from the house of Maker, uh, son of Amiel in Lodabar. This would have been uh, Mephibosheth's greatest nightmare. The guards have come to Lodabar. They've loaded him up. They have taken him to the king. He must have known that his life was about to end. Verse 6, Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell face down, and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth. He said, I am your, I am your servant. So this would have been a moment of high drama. There's Mephibosheth on the floor, his heart pounding, knowing that Perhaps he was breathing his last breaths. There's David about to pronounce sentence. There would have been the royal court watching to see what's about to happen, wondering if somehow they might be next. Look at verse 7. This is a shocker. Don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields and you will always eat meals at my table. Now I want you to see the transformation here. Uh, Mephibosheth has gone from being almost certainly executed. Uh, he is feeble. He is broke, he is hopeless, he is defenseless. He is the worst thing you could be in Israel, the grandson of the previous king. And in an instant, he goes from that place to being one of the wealthiest people in Israel. All the lands of his grandfather has been restored. Well, his grandfather was the king. That's a lot of lands. And he has been invited to eat at David's table with David's children for the rest of his days. Uh, in a sense, what David has just done is he has adopted Mephibosheth into his family. Uh, notice here that it doesn't just say that David gives him the land and gives him a meal, but he says, you will always eat meals at my table. Look at verse 8, Mephibosheth paid homage and said, what is your servant that you would take an interest in a dead dog like me? Uh, Mephibosheth just doesn't understand. Now let me insert something here that perhaps would fit later, better later in the message. But if the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't make you scratch your head, if the grace and the mercy of the Lord doesn't make you wonder the same thing Mephibosheth wondered, God, what in the world are you doing? Then you don't understand the gospel, right? So Mephibosheth, he just doesn't understand. 
You notice the question was never answered. Verse 13, uh, if we go to the end of the chapter, it says, however, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. So we see that the adoption was complete. Uh, it's interesting though that the chapter ends with those five words, his feet had been injured. We already knew that. It's, we've been told twice in just a dozen verses. So what's the significance of this? Well, I think the significance is that the writer here wanted to remind us even at the end that Mephibosheth never did become worthy. It, it wasn't that Mephibosheth got a second chance and, and he proved to be a uh, a great warrior for David, a, a political hero, a leader, and, and, uh, and a contributor to the kingdom. No, Mephibosheth never was worthy. And he was there the rest of his days, and the rest of his days, he still wasn't worthy. But he was there. He was there. Now, you understand the historical context. Let's go back to verse 1, the greatest verse in the Old Testament uh, verse one, I want to read it again. You're going to want to keep your finger on this verse because we're going to look at every single word. The verse says, David asked, is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul? I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake. Let me show you six pictures of the gospel. The first two words, David asked. What we see here is the initiative in the gospel. What prompted David to ask the question and to search out for Mephibosheth? No one was demanding that David do this. No one expected David to do this. No one required David to do this. No one would have imagined that David would have sought someone in Saul's family to show kindness. This was 100% the initiative of David. David did this because David wanted to do this. It was his initiative. Now that points us to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Why does God offer us salvation? It's not because we deserve it. It's not because he's expected to. It's not because there's some law, some principle, some guideline that would lead him to do that. It's not even because we have asked him to. It is completely 100% the initiative of God, the heart of God. Isn't this amazing that God decided to make a way that you and I can be children of God God took the initiative. And we see that in David's initiative here. I love Romans 5, 8. It says, God proves his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does that verse mean? God didn't wait for us to reach out to him. God didn't wait for us to try to clean up our lives. God didn't even wait for us to uh, be sorry for our sin. God didn't even wait for us to finish sinning. It was God's initiative from the beginning, based on his own character and his own desire, God initiated our salvation. You know, that's, uh, that's true in the big picture, the theological picture. John 3, 16 is the verse everybody knows. For God so loved the world that, that he gave his only, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The gift started from the Lord. And so it's true in a universal sense, but it's also true in a very personal sense. 
Uh, listen to what Jesus said in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So our personal salvation begins when God draws us to him. It doesn't start with you seeking out God. You may have thought that, but the very act of you seeking God started with God drawing you to him. It's the initiative of God. Isn't that amazing? Listen, men, just give you a little marriage advice. This is free right here. If your wife has to ask you to get her a Valentine's card, there is no Valentine's card ever written <laughs> that'll get you out of trouble, okay? Because she is more interested in the initiative than in the words of the card. She is. Have you ever, little experiment, um, I didn't plan to say this, but if you go to Walmart uh, on Valentine's Day is the best way to do this, and just look at how people pick out Valentine's Day cards, you will learn a lot about human nature. So you watch a man walk up to pick out a Valentine's Day card. And he usually shops the Valentine's cards and he has picked one out and he is headed to the register in less than 20 seconds. <laughs> if you watch the ladies walk up, it takes an hour and a half for them to pick out a Valentine's Day card. So, um, I don't know, there's a sermon in there somewhere. I don't know what it is. <laughs> what I'm trying to tell you is that initiative counts for everything, right? If she has to tell you to get a Valentine's Day card, the Valentine's Day, that didn't mean, yeah, yeah, you lost. Don't even get one. I mean, it's pointless now. God took the initiative and he drew me to him. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him? whom they have not believed. And how can they believe without hearing? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. So God takes his word and then God takes a person who, who communicates the word to a person who is lost and God uses that as a tool to draw that person to him. Why are we having Easter at the Colosseum? Listen, we want to have an opportunity to get people the word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that God can use his word to draw people to him. God has taken the initiative, and we're reminded of that right here in the beginning of uh, verse 1. David asked. David asked. Uh, the second thing we see here in this verse the next three words, is there anyone? David asked, what was the question he asked? Well, it started off, is there anyone? This tells us about the availability of the gospel. Uh, I think that word anyone can be one of the most beautiful words uh, to those who know and understand the gospel. David didn't give any qualifications. He didn't give any limitations. He didn't give any expectations. David didn't say, are there any uh, capable? Uh, are there any wealthy? Are there any? He just said, is there anyone? Aren't you glad that God's standard is anyone? 
Um, one of the greatest enemies of the gospel today, I believe, is this self-improvement, pick yourself up by your bootstraps culture that we live in, that if you'll just work hard enough, that if you'll just uh, read the right books and follow the right advice and take the right medicine, perhaps, uh, that you can get your life cleaned up and fixed up and perhaps you can present it to the Lord. Uh, but the truth is, uh, none of us will ever qualify for God's grace and mercy. That's why David said, is there anyone? And that's why God says, is there anyone? Imagine if you're trying to get to the moon. I don't know if you've considered going to the moon, but if you decided that you wanted to get to the moon, uh, but you stood on your tiptoes and you couldn't reach it, it's a long ways. Maybe you took a running start and you jumped and you couldn't get to the moon. I imagine both of those would be the case. So you wanna get to the moon, you can't reach it, you can't jump, so what should you do? Somebody tells you that there's a spaceship going to the moon and you think perhaps that's an option, but before you get on the spaceship, uh, maybe you could do some things to help. And so you get some platform shoes, maybe you do some stretching, uh, you might can add a quarter inch to your reach somehow. Maybe you do some uh, cross training that would allow you to run faster and jump harder. Would that help you in your, in, in, in your desire to get to the moon? No, you're still hopelessly separated from the moon apart from the spaceship. You can do all of the fixing up and cleaning up and trying harder you want to do, but you will not be any closer to qualifying for the grace and mercy of God. The only hope we have is that word, anyone. David said, is there anyone, anyone? Now the next word, remaining, I won't, won't spend a lot of time on this, but there's just some common sense here. Uh, David was not asking for a list of the dead uh, family members for Saul. He didn't say, are there any, any of Saul's family members in the grave? Is that what, what David was interested in? No. He was only interested in one kind of family member, those that were alive, okay? I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? But there's a gospel lesson in that, the limitation of the gospel. It's for those of us who are alive, the Bible says in Hebrews 9:27 that it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. The gospel invitation stops, it ceases when a person dies. And so we see that David said, is there anyone remaining? Is there anyone alive? And then he says, is there anyone alive from the family of Saul? Here we see the eligibility of the gospel, and this is a little bit of an overlap from the previous one. Uh, but I want you to know that there was no one in Israel less qualified uh, to receive the grace and mercy of David than those who were in the household of Saul. And we've studied Saul in recent weeks. We know that Saul tried to kill David on multiple occasions. He tried to uh, pierce him with a spear. He, he hunted him down uh, from cave to cave and tried on numerous occasions to kill David. He took David's wife away. There were all kinds of things. There was no one worthy 
less worthy, I should say, of the mercy of David than Saul and Saul's family. Nobody was qualified, but everybody was eligible. And maybe this, is, maybe this is just meaningful to me, but there's a difference in being qualified and eligible. David said, is there anyone in the house of Saul, anyone in the family of Saul, those were the people who were not qualified for David's grace. But when David said this, those were the people who became eligible for David's grace. You see the difference? They were the least qualified, but when David said this, verse one, they became the most eligible. What an incredible thing. That's a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not qualified, but when Jesus died on the cross, I became eligible. The eligibility of the gospel. I pointed this out a little earlier, but I didn't I didn't really point it out well, perhaps. Uh, Mephibosheth asked the question, uh, you know, why are you doing this? And you see, I think that was at verse eight. Uh, yeah, Mephibosheth paid homage and said, what is your servant that you would take interest in a dead dog like me? Mephibosheth said, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? I don't deserve this. And do you see David's answer? You don't, because he doesn't. Because there's no answer. In essence, is Mephibosheth, you're right. There's no good reason to do this. You're the grandson of the enemy. You're the only person who could rise up and challenge my throne. Your family has dealt my family misery. Your family has tried to kill my family. You're, you're a rebel. And so Mephibosheth asked the question, David, why are you doing this? David didn't answer because there's not a good answer. There's no good reason for David to do it. So he doesn't answer. He doesn't answer because clearly Mephibosheth was not qualified in any way and his eligibility was based on something that didn't have anything to do with him, really. Let me show you number five. We're still right here in verse one. We are not skipping a word. David asks, is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul? Then what does it say next? Um, that I can show kindness to. That's the basis of the gospel. You know, the basis, the foundation, the reason for the gospel is the kindness of God. David said, I want to show them kindness. I want to show them my kindness. Um, that's a picture of the gospel, and we've really already said this, but I, I want to show you just a little extra piece of this. Because the gospel is based on the kindness of God and not my merit. It, it, because the gospel is based on the character of God and not on the character of Noel. What does that tell us about uh, the security of our salvation? It's pretty secure. It, 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 see, Mephibosheth was spared execution because of the kindness of David. And then Mephibosheth came to the first dinner with the family because of the kindness of David. Now, how is Mephibosheth going to get to the second dinner? Well, the kindness of David. You see, if this depended on Mephibosheth, I don't know how long it would have lasted. Not very long, I imagine. But see, it didn't depend on Mephibosheth. It didn't start because of Mephibosheth. It didn't continue because of Mephibosheth. 
It wasn't grounded on Mephibosheth. It was grounded on the kindness of David. My salvation, the basis of my salvation is the kindness of God. I don't know about you, but I have some bad weeks. You ever have some bad weeks? And I'm so thankful my salvation is based on the kindness of God. You know how many bad weeks the kindness of God has had? <laughs> yeah, he hadn't had one yet. Number six, the end of the verse, he says, for Jonathan's sake. This is the champion of the gospel. Do you see that what David did here for Mephibosheth uh, really didn't have anything to do with Mephibosheth, did it? Did, did David do this because of Mephibosheth? No. David did this because of Jonathan, because of his love for, because of his relationship for Jonathan, because Jonathan worked to save David's life when it was in peril. Listen, our salvation, I don't know if this will hurt your feelings or not, but our salvation doesn't have a whole lot to do with us. The grace and mercy of God is it's because of the person of Jesus Christ. You see, if it were about me, it would have never happened. The wages of sin is death. My salvation is not even about me. It's about Jesus. I've used this illustration a thousand times, forgive me, but uh, I, I, love, I love that passage. I didn't used to love it at all, but I, I love that passage where Jesus is baptized and um, God says from heaven to Jesus, um, well done, my good and faithful servant, I'm pleased with you. Uh, those aren't the exact words. What are the, um, so, so, something to that effect. And I used, to, I, I used to hate that. I hate that, strong word. But I, 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 didn't, I didn't like that because uh, I'd heard people preach it, and I'd preached it just like this. Uh, you need to live a life. This is like the men's retreat verse. You need to live a life so that one day you'll stand before God and he'll say, I am well pleased with your life. And I used to hear that preached, and I used to preach it. But on the inside, I just cringe. There's not, not anything well pleasing about my life to God. The holiness of God... The more I learn about that, the more I know my life is not well-pleasing. But I've learned that that's not the right application of that verse. God will say, God does say when he looks at me, you're well-pleasing. But you know why? Because Jesus has lived a well-pleasing life for me. Because I have put on the righteousness of Christ, is how the Apostle Paul says it. And so, the champion of the gospel, what my salvation is about, is Jesus. I haven't lived a sinless life, but Jesus lived it for me. I lived a sinless life and deserved death, and Jesus died for me. It's all about Jesus. I'm a child of God today. I'm at the king's table every day because of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And just as Mephibosheth was so undeserving and unworthy 
to be at David's table, I am just as undeserving and I am just as unworthy, but I am there at the king's table. I have been adopted into his family because of Jesus, because of Jesus. You know, Mephibosheth, he was a trophy of Jonathan's glory. I imagine that David, when he would look across the table and he would see Mephibosheth, he'd remind him of Jonathan. Jonathan was a great man. Mephibosheth, that was David's reminder. He was a signpost. He was a billboard. He was a memorial for Jonathan. That's how David would have looked at it. Well, guess what? Me and you, if we're children of God, we are a trophy of the love and the forgiveness of Christ. And when God looks at me, he sees Christ. We are a billboard for Christ. We are a memorial for Christ. We're a memorial for Christ. Now, I, I, I wanna wrap this up uh, by answering the question, what should I do now with this beautiful picture of the gospel? Other than you ought to put a circle around 2 Samuel 9, 1 in your Bible, if you love Jesus, you'll do that. Because um, it's such a gospel verse. Um, here's, what, here's what we should do. Number one, we should respond to the invitation of the king. If you have never embraced the gospel, that Jesus lived a sinless life for you, and he died a substitution death for you, and you're willing to trust what he's done to be right with God, surrender your life to him, that's, that's how we respond to the gospel. If you've never done that, you need to do that today. Today, respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I tell you another way, some people need to respond to the gospel. Some people have, have, have moved from Lodabar to the king's table, but then you have moved from the king's table back to Lodabar. Listen, you need to come back to the king's table. I know you don't feel worthy. You think you've been gone too far, too long. But no, you weren't ever at the king's table because of you anyway. Come on back. You need to respond to the gospel. That's, that's number one. Number two, we just need to marvel. Marvel at the king's table. Don't you know that every time Mephibosheth got to the king's table, now wouldn't it have been nice to eat at the king's table? I love to go and eat at some nice place and see all the best foods and Chateaubriand and Bernays sauce. I don't know if I'm making you hungry, but uh, I love those things. And I uh, don't, don't get to do it very often, but I, yeah. So that's what they were serving at the king's table, right? And so Mephibosheth comes to the king's table and it is, it is just decadent. What do you think he thought? I cannot believe I'm here. I, this is amazing. I'm here again because of Jonathan and because David loves Jonathan. Listen, as children of God, we ought to just be amazed every day when we come to the king's table. And then the final thing to do with the beauty, 
beautiful picture of the gospel is we need to polish God's trophy. Um, so what does it mean for me and you to be a trophy of God's grace and mercy and a signpost for Christ's love and sacrifice? It means when people get around us, uh, they ought to experience the same kind of mercy and grace and love. Uh, I have three daughters. Uh, one of them does not look like me because she, uh, she's adopted, but the other two, uh, when they were young, uh, and you, I mean, this is, this is what you get, right? So uh, you can imagine how upsetting this was. Uh, when I was young, people would say to them, and they meant well, but they would say to my daughters, you look just like your daddy. <laughs> and there was more wailing and gnashing of teeth over that encouragement. But you know, you look like your daddy, right? So what does it mean to be a trophy of God's grace? It means that we ought to look like God. I mean, in the sense that we are so filled with grace and mercy and love and forgiveness, anytime somebody gets around us, they ought to be exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I heard a man tell a story, a pastor tell a story of, um, uh, he, was, he was out to eat, I think it was him, maybe he was telling the story of somebody else, but they were out to eat at a restaurant and there were several people around the table and they just had the worst service you can imagine. The food never came. They got the drinks wrong. The food was wrong. They, it just was bad from start to finish. The server, she had an attitude and she, it just was bad. And so they were frustrated through the whole meal, but they, they got to the end. She brings the, uh, the check and, and uh, takes the credit card and then he, he's, he's about to put the tip on there. And one of the guys at the table said, well, what kind of tip are you going to leave her? And he thought about it a minute and he said, you know what? I'm going to leave her a 30% tip. And the people at the table said, what are you thinking? Uh, she, uh, she was bad at her job. She had a bad attitude. She was inattentive. She was sloppy. And you're going to give her a 30% tip. And he said he he said, I wasn't, but then I got to thinking about all the ways I live for my Lord. And I thought about how inattentive I am, how sloppy I am, how selfish I am, and just how magnanimous the Lord has been to me. I'm going to give her a gospel tip. She doesn't deserve this, but I don't deserve anything God does for me either. Now, the, the application of the servant of the sermon isn't just go tip your waiter. You should, right? If uh, you know, tip them extraordinarily, give them a gospel tip. You say, well, I can't afford that. Well, then eat it, eat at the house. Okay. I mean, there's a, <laughs> but the point is, Everywhere we go and whatever we do and whatever we say, if we are a trophy of the grace of God, you ought to be able to tell that. You ought to be able to tell that. Head bowed, eyes closed. We ought to finish. I hope you'll respond today to the beautiful picture of the gospel. Either accept the invitation, marvel at the table, or polish the trophy. 
Father in heaven, in both services as we stand and sing, I pray that you'll lead people to respond either where they stand or in the front where there are ministers waiting to speak and pray. But Father, don't let this message just go in one ear and out the other. Father, don't let us be guilty of just staying in Lodabar, but let us come to the king's table today for your honor and glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together in both services and you respond. <laughs>